Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 253. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 253 you're listening to. My guest today is Mary Mazurik. She is a Grammy-nominated recording engineer, artist, educator, speaker, and consultant out of the greater Chicago area. She primarily works over at WFMT Broadcasting there in Chicago and also works as an adjunct professor at DePaul University. And we're going to discuss her journey here shortly. So Mary Mazurik coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. All right, I hope you have your coffee cups close by. Let's take a sip and uh, let's talk about listening to music, live music, records, and such. Mm, Drinking this Trader Joe's Columbia Supremo coffee, uh, medium roast, sweet and rich. Uh, It's got two toucans on the front. This stuff is crazy. You know, I drink a lot of coffee, as you all know, and that stuff makes my heart race like, The last time I had coffee that made my heart race, I think it was blue bottle coffee. Man, and you know I drink so much coffee that that's kind of an extraordinary feat to get my heart race like that. I don't know what's going on there. I don't know how they grow those coffee beans, but woo. Okay, moving on. Hey, I had the uh, privilege of going to a local high school last night to go watch the President's Own United States Marine Band. This is, of course the band that plays at inaugurations and such. Reading out of the program from last night here, they were established by an act of Congress in 1798, and they are America's oldest continuously active professional musical organization. Amazing. President John Adams invited the Marine Band to make its White House debut on New Year's Day, 1801, in the then unfinished Executive Mansion. And in March of that year, Uh, The band performed for Thomas Jefferson's inauguration and has performed for every presidential inauguration since. Of course, those of you familiar with John Philip Sousa, you know, John Philip Sousa and his marches, right? He was director from 1880 to 1892. So yeah, these guys have quite a history. It was really amazing. You'd expect them to be good, but man, they were damn good. Not only did they look good, but you know, just you combine that the aspect of, you know, discipline from the Marine Corps with the discipline of a bunch of ace musicians in a, in a band environment, and you combine that, and oh my God, they were great. They had a guy who was doing the announcing, like kind of MC, so to speak, between numbers. I noticed right off the bat, I was like, wow, this guy's voice is amazing. He'd be great for radio or a podcast, huge baritone voice. And then the guy gets up and just blows everybody out of the water and sings a number of songs, like old classic songs, like, uh, what did they sing here? Oh, When You Wish Upon a Star, The Way You Look Tonight, Chim Chimmery, Windmills of Your Mind, Days of Wine and Roses, Moon River. These were, this was like a silver screen kind of uh, tribute to a bunch of, I guess, Academy Award winning movies. Really amazing. Guy got a standing ovation and you could see the, the pride on his face. He was just so like thrilled. You know, it's a high school gym, and actually it was acoustically treated pretty well for a high school gym, I must say. It's amazing to me how emotional live music can really just grip you. And I want to just encourage you all to make sure to go out and see some live music once in a while. Next week, I'm going to go out uh, to The Independent, which is a club in San Francisco. I'm going to go see uh, the Black Pumas, who I believe are from Austin, Texas. They're a band that I've been kind of loosely following for a bit. Super excited to see that. And top that off with, I have just been on a on a real music listening binge. I mentioned some time ago, you know, I picked up an old Pioneer turntable, bought a bunch of records, have been going through those meticulously one by one and discovering a bunch of records that I never knew about. But also, I recently got a subscription to Tidal. I thought I would give that another chance. It's, it is expensive, it's 20 bucks a month, but I thought, well, let's, let's try it for a bit and see what we think. And, Man, it does sound good, and huge catalog, uh, new stuff, old stuff. Uh, So 
In short, not trying to be a nag, but just remember, if you work in music, you need to consider spending some time listening to music other than the stuff you're getting paid to work on. When you go out and you see live music, you definitely remind your ears of that perspective, of uh, that realism, of you know what excites people about music, uh, the dynamics of it. When you listen to other people's music that, you know, maybe it's in, whether it's a different genre or not, I think that's uh, super effective to just remind you like, oh yeah, this is, this is what's going on, you know, musically speaking. But also, here's some different perspectives on how things could or should sound. You can draw some inspiration from those other records. Get out, see some live music, maybe buy some records, get on streaming, do something to just bring some more music into your life and maybe replace, you know, some of the other habits we all have with time spent doing that. Just a reminder, listen to music, live and otherwise. It doesn't always have to be the music you're getting paid to work on, so uh, get out there. Do some music listening. All right, let's get to it. Mary Mazurik, here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Mary, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Let's just start with right now, just so we can give the audience an idea of what it is you do and why you're here. And if you could maybe give me a description of what you do day-to-day in the audio world. Well, I work for WFMT Radio in Chicago. We're the classical station. We produce approximately 250 live music broadcasts a year, for which I am the one who is primarily responsible for those. I also teach audio. And as we were speaking before we went on, I am working on a PhD. What's your PhD in? It's actually in art theory and philosophy. But I'm actually looking at how to evaluate noise when it's used as an art and a a compositional material. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Chicago, where I'm born and raised and still here. At what point did audio come onto your radar as something that you were interested in? Well, I went to music school, so I went to DePaul University to study music, and I was thinking maybe I would teach. But then they had this new-ish major called sound recording technology, and I had no idea what that was. And I thought, well, yeah, I can do that. It's got science in it. It's got music. Uh, it's great. Sign me up. And what was that experience like? What What were the big takeaways then? And how, in, in retrospect, how would you evaluate that program? It was a great experience. I literally knew nothing about audio. Nothing. Zero. The program was run by Murray Allen, who used to own Universal Recording. That was Bill Putnam's original studio. That was where Bill Putnam started before he came to the West Coast. Correct. Correct. So Murray owned Universal, and he was head of the recording program at DePaul. So we all had to interview with Murray in order to get into this program. And he said, why do you want to be in this program? And I said, I like music and I like science. And I think this is a great way to combine both of them. And he said, best answer I've heard all day, you're in. (laughs) (laughs) Was it a big class or? No, it was... Six or seven of us at wow. the time. That's great. Yeah, we, we were the third class to graduate, and this was way back in the 90s. Where did that take you afterwards? Was there any promises of placement or mentorship or, or apprenticeship anywhere? Well, it wasn't really formally talked about, but the nice thing was is I put the pedal to the metal and did all my gen eds and all my extra work. So by the time I got into the sound recording, that was those were the only classes I was taking. And we were having classes at Universal Recording. And I would just go hang out during the day. I'd just go hang out, sit in, you know, sit in the green room, see who was there. And then one day I walked into Murray's office and I said, hey, Murray, can I assist here? And he said, he just kind of looked at me and said, yeah, okay, go talk to um, so-and-so in the office. Okay, cool. So I did that and... I can't even remember who it was, but he was like, okay, well, file these papers. And I said, well, Murray said I could assist. And he's like, yeah, Mr. Allen, blah, blah, blah. Murray said I could assist. (laughs) And then my teacher was walking past at the time. He was the chief engineer at the time, Tom Miller. And he said, do you want to assist? And I said, yes. And he said, come with me. And I helped him set up a jingle session. That's interesting. The other individual saying, yeah, great, file these papers. 
And had Tom not walked by, I wonder what would have happened. I'm sure you would have been, you know, persistent, but what great timing. I know it was perfect. It was perfect. And I was an assistant at Universal and I assisted a lot of dance music sessions. And at the time they were restoring Orson Welles' Othello. So I was put with the only woman engineer there, Larita De La Serna. Mm -hmm. And she, her specialty is Foley. She's in LA now and working on some big time projects with like Foley recording and ADR and stuff. So I worked with her also a lot, especially on this Orson Welles project because it was had a pretty good portion of the studio working because it was being rescored and they were fixing the dialogue and adding new sound effects. So I worked with Larita and she was like, she was tough. She rode my ass like, <laughs> like no one else. And she's like, these guys aren't going to cut you any slack. And, you know, you just have to be better than them. And I was like, I don't know what you're talking about because everybody's really nice here. But then Universal closed. It was, mm. I believe, 91. And then I was finishing up my degree and I was trying to find a job afterwards. And I was sending out resumes to every studio, every radio, every TV station in town. And I wasn't hearing back from anyone. And then I finally decided trying to call places and there were no responses. And I, rec I got one of the studios, one of the big three studios in Chicago at the time. And they basically told me, we don't hire women engineers, but you can answer the phone if you like. Holy crap. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Um, I was kind of blindsided by that. And I, I just said, no, thank you and hung up the phone. Not a place you would want to be working. No, you know, and I was actually really surprised because when Universal closed, we finished out our degree at this particular studio. And we weren't there long, but we were there. So I was really surprised to get that response. And not to mention that it was completely illegal and whatever else it was. But yeah, I was kind of blindsided and I was kind of, all right, I just spent all this money on tuition and what am I going to do now? But then WFMT called me and I started working as a freelancer in the very glamorous job of occasional overnight board operator. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so basically every once in a while, usually the weekends, like midnight till eight in the morning, I would just be the technical babysitter and make sure all everything worked and all the automation kicked in when it was supposed to and change cart machines and that. But I had a lot of time on my hands, so I would pull reels from the archive, from the library, and listen to Studs Terkel interview, like Carl Sagan and Bob Dylan and anybody else you can think of, Aaron Copeland. Wow. Yeah. At yeah. that time, in that position, and trying to make a living, were you diversifying? Were you having to take a, a, a job during the day and... How are you managing to, to survive? Yeah, early on, I was, I was still kind of working retail and doing the overnight shifts. But then my boss at the time was like, oh, you have recording experience. I don't really want to do this particular concert series. You go do it. So the series is called the Damira Hess Memorial Concerts, and it takes place every Wednesday afternoon downtown at the Cultural Center. Mm -hmm. And we broadcast that live. So I've been doing that maybe about a month or two after I started here. Mm -hmm. Wow. Dive right in. And tell me if you agree with this. It's, you know, live sound, for one thing, is one aspect of audio that is has a little bit of a flying by the seat of your pants thing. But broadcasting, recording live is a whole nother animal too. Yeah, I like it. It's a lot of fun. So basically, it, it's a live concert. There's an audience. And what I'm trying to do is create Mm, like the ideal seat, maybe six row center, but I want to give you a little bit more detail than an audience member might hear. And generally I do that particular concert series. It's, it's a stereo pair basically, and maybe an occasional spot mic or not because classical musicians will balance themselves. So that particular concert series, I can usually just do a stereo pair and then have the announcer in a booth with me and a mic for him. And we just, we run it live. You know, then it was only audio. Now we're streaming at Facebook Live as well. So I'm providing an audio feed for them as well. So you went from part-time board operator, midnight to 8 a.m. type sessions, and then went to this 
broadcasting live situation. And I assume that that just snowballed into more responsibility over time. Yeah, it kept building and building. And as I said, we do approximately 250 live music broadcasts a year, and I'm responsible for most of them. Wow, that's a lot of shows. Yeah. In fact, I have one set up for tonight. I'm actually sitting in the control room now. I have the concert master of the Chicago Symphony Orchestra coming in and the pianist, and we're going to hear some violin music. And eventually, I assume you quit the retail job. Is that what that? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Got out of that. So then you became a full-time employee? Yeah, eventually I, I did become a full-time employee of, of WFMT. And I also started teaching at Columbia College here in Chicago. Basically, I had attended an AES meeting, one of the regional meetings. And the person who was giving a talk was Doug Jones, and he was the head of the recording program at the time. And I'm sitting in the back. This is my very first AES meeting And he's talking about small room acoustics and what not to do. And what he was describing as what not to do was the previous incarnation of WFMT. We had just moved to a new facility. So I'm sitting in the back snickering because I knew exactly what he was talking about. (laughs) And I went up to apologize after, after say, I'm sorry, I didn't really mean to, to snicker in the back, but... I work for WFMT and I know what you're talking about. And then he said, you know what? We don't have any women teaching it in our audio program. I bet you could teach. Why don't you come talk to me about that? And I said, okay. Yeah. On this podcast, I always am preaching about diversification and of varying your income streams in mm-hmm. case, you know, one thing falls away, you have the other one to kind of, you know, carry a little bit of the weight while you look to offset that loss. So WFMT and teaching is, do you, do you do any other side gigs? Yeah. So right now I'm taking a break from Columbia College and I'm teaching at my alma mater, DePaul. So that's still going, but I've been taking freelance jobs pretty much all along. And I always used to joke, it was basically, I'm taking freelance work to support my gear habit, but... (laughs) (laughs) But actually, it was, it was also teaching me a lot as well, because it's a different animal than live broadcast. It was giving me new experiences. But the nice thing was, is I could sort of pick and choose what mm. I wanted to work on. And it also allowed me the opportunity to work on uh, an album called Liquid Melancholy, uh, clarinet music of James Stevenson, for which I and the other engineer, Bill Malone, were nominated for a Grammy Award. Oh, yeah, maybe that, I I recognize that name, and that may have been one of the posts that you had made on, on LinkedIn, and that's possibly where I saw your name and was like, huh, I should have her on the show. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm pretty sure I posted something about that. <laughs> What have been the big challenges in your time in audio thus far? Part of it is getting over the woman thing. Because I would go to like an AES meeting or I would go to like other engineering meetings. And I would, in the beginning, I would be the only woman there. And I wasn't always welcome at some of these things. Or at least I didn't feel welcome at some of these things. And I've even been told by some of the guys early on, like, oh, well, you can't sustain yourself in a freelance career, so you have to take, like, a a gig, like, at FMT. And I, you know, and at first I felt bad about that, but then I thought, you know what? I have health insurance, so I have benefits, so. (laughs) That's how you play that game. That's great. Right. Did anybody ever extend a hand in that group of people? people who you didn't feel welcome from? Oh, yeah, for sure. Actually, Danny Leak, who was the chief engineer of Universal before Tom Miller, he has always been super supportive of me and really, really encouraging. So that that was always really nice. You know, and I'm really grateful to, like, Murray Allen for even, like, seeing any potential in me because, really, I went in not knowing anything but he, I guess he must have saw something because he allowed me into the program at DePaul to study and then allowed me to assist. And even through that, I, I mean, I got to assist at Harpo for Oprah Winfrey's show every once in a while because of that connection. So, so that was great. Also, 
It was kind of strange at WFMT. They had gone through some major changes and had let their engineering, a lot of their engineering staff go. So basically, I was the only one here doing live broadcasts. So I had to teach myself a lot. But every once in a while, a couple of the engineers who were here before me, Larry Rock, who's won numerous Grammy Awards for his his work, who's now at the New York Philharmonic, their audio director, he's been very generous with information and and things. So he's come back here on occasions and I've assisted him and he's taught me things and I'll be going to New York for AES tomorrow, actually. So I'm hoping to get a chance to chat with him and say, hey, there have been a lot of people who have extended a hand or have helped and I've learned a lot from those people. When I think of Universal, I think, well, that was a long time ago and yeah. Murray must have come from a whole nother era. Yeah, for sure. Um, and Murray... Well, you know the song Tequila, Mm -hmm. the saxophone? He played the saxophone solo on that. Oh, my God. Wow. (laughs) So, yeah, he's, he's definitely of a different era. But Murray was actually very progressive because he hired women and minorities, which was something that was not going on in the studios in Chicago at that time. And I wonder... Was he at Universal at the time Bill Putnam was? Yes. Yes, I believe so. I don't know the entire story, but I think he married into the family. What would you say? That was what, in the in the 50s, 60s? That, you know, the, the Bill Putnam era? Because I'm thinking of Bill working with Nat King Cole, and I don't know if that happened in on the West Coast or, or in Chicago. Yeah, no, I'm not entirely sure myself. I don't know. I guess... That's in, in Chicago of a person of that era that probably, from a, a cultural standpoint, was progressive, was kind of on, on the edge at a time when that wasn't normal. Yeah, very much so, especially, especially here in Chicago at the time, because another studio told me, just told me, we're not hiring. But you know there's a problem when someone just can say, we don't hire women, you know, there's a culture of that around if somebody's going to come out and say that so matter-of-factly. Yeah, I guess there's pros and cons to that. I mean, the pro being you, at least you know where you stand there and you can just avoid that like the plague. But at the same time, it's just so out there and blatant that it's like, really? Right, right. And on the good side of that, it made me work a lot harder. But at the same time, it always felt like I needed to prove myself. I had to keep proving myself, keep proving myself, which made me a great audio engineer, but really wreaked havoc on my health. So I'm trying to balance all of that stuff out. (laughs) WFMT, obviously you've been there for a number of years at this point, right? Right. Uh Uh-huh, 26. You obviously feel quite comfortable, I would assume. I do. Um, It's a very supportive kind of family, really. This has been my laboratory where I've, like, learned all kinds of stuff from from just doing the live broadcasts and working with the classical musicians. And I've been, I mean, I've worked with a who's who of classical music. They've all been through here. Have you made any great mistakes or had any failures along the way that you've really learned from that have shaped who you are now? I think really it's more of an issue of valuing myself and taking care of myself because, as you know, this industry can kind of chew you up and spit you out. Yeah. So that constant feeling that I needed to work twice as hard as any man in this industry and constantly prove myself made me quite sick. I actually came into it with some autoimmune things and that kind of stress and just trying to keep up with that pace really, really did a number on me. And I had to really rethink how I worked and what I did because the body at some point was going to be like, no. Can't do this. Too much stress. Right. Right. I can't even imagine. But is part of that the survival too, trying to figure out well how to make a living, how to survive while I'm there from a physical standpoint of, of not having to stress out about all these things happening around you? Well, you know, and I always felt like I had to take everything that was offered, at least initially. Mm. And to some degree you do. So when it was like freelance or, you know, and I've had some bosses who are less supportive, but now it's really good. But it always felt like I had to prove myself and had to work 
two or three times as hard. And it really does kind of cause a lot of stress and burn you out, make you ill. So I've, I've had to learn how to balance that better. In fact, I'm still kind of learning how to balance that. Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. On the podcast, we also talk a lot about work-life balance. Uh-huh. Are you a workaholic and at all, or do you, do you really yeah, try to balance it yeah. out? <laughs> I like doing a lot of different things, and that's part of it. But as I said, I was working a lot. So I was teaching, and I was working at WFMT and taking freelance things. And I was in a marriage that wasn't working out, even though I I was married to an audio engineer. So he certainly understood the life. Right. But it it seemed like, one, it was starting to be a competition, and two, we had very different ideas as to how life should go. (laughs) So all of that stress, and then my parents were older, so I think we're about the same age. So I'm just not the cusp of 50. Yep. I'm going to be I'm going to be 50 uh, uh, next month. Oh, happy birthday. Thank I you. will be 50 in March. Hmm. A preemptive happy birthday to you. Thank you. But my parents got married really late and had kids really late, so to think about this, my dad was a kid during the Great Depression and fought during World War II, and my mom was born during the Great Depression, so there's like this big generation gap. So I think not through any fault of their own parents put their same anxieties and insecurities on their kids. Mm -hmm. So it always kind of felt like there wasn't enough. So you had to work really, really, really hard so you could survive. So some of it's still trying, you know, being in that survival mode, even though that wasn't entirely true. Did your parents have multiple refrigerators or freezers growing up? Yes. Yes, we had like a huge freezer in the basement. They would buy like half a steer. (laughs) Yeah. My parents have two refrigerators in the house and two freezers in the garage. And it's just, (laughs) it's that generation. Like my dad is 90. My dad will be 91 this year. And my mom is uh, 87 or 88, I believe. So I, I, when you talk about that generation, I totally okay. So you know, <laughs> I know. Yeah, there's. It was just a different time in the in the United States. A lot more um, kind of a group sacrifice or group like, hey, we're all in this for you know whether it be World War II, the Greatest Generation, right. and the thought process there possibly. Yeah, I think so too. I mean, and the thought was also maybe my options were get married, have children, or join the convent or something like that, and. I was like, even from a little kid, I was like, no. (laughs) Were you raised Catholic? Very. Yeah. (laughs) Me too. I had my own ideas, even as a little kid sometimes. I'm just like, no, that's not going to happen. So when I said, I'm going to go to college and I'm going to major in music, they were like, what? (laughs) What are you doing? How are you going to work in that? I don't know. I'm just going to do it. I'm going to figure it out. I'm going to do it. Yeah. Audio and music to the parent that is not familiar with it or sees the value in it or understands the industry around it. I think that you take a generational kind of bias about how life should be in the first place, and then you couple it with the unknowns of audio and music, and it really can uh, make a parent's head spin, I'm sure. Oh, for sure. I remember when I told my parents that I wanted to move to San Francisco with the band I was in to get a record deal, my dad said, why don't you just join the army band? <laughs> and I was like, yeah, you're kidding, right? No, no was not. Yeah. Because, I mean, in that generation, you go to work for a big corporation and, you know, you put in your time and you get a pension and they take care of you and, and that just doesn't really exist. That's for damn sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, I feel really fortunate to have one of the few kind of staff engineering positions around in this town. And that staff position, do you do 
a full 40 hours plus a week or what are the requirements on the hours? Yeah, it's it's about 40 hours. Um, occasionally I'll go over. I've just we've just gone into classical music season, so it does get a little busier now. So again, I have a live broadcast tonight and I'll do that. But I'm also doing things like I'm writing content for the web, also doing the audio for on-demand video content for the web or Facebook Live. I do a lot of that as well. Yeah, so it's about a 40-hour week. Do you find that having the knowledge of being able to navigate social media, because there's you take an organization that's somewhat old and has a bit of an old guard left in its infrastructure in terms of the staff that's there. And then Mm -hmm. there's a few people who understand social media and know how to harness it. Do you find that that adds to your job security? I mean, it it certainly doesn't hurt. And and again, I like, I value hybridity. So I like doing a lot of different things. I mean, it's still around audio and around radio and things like that. But I get to do it in a number of different manners. So I'll think about something like I just released an article on WFMT.com about how to care for your vinyl because I was interested in finding out and I knew the questions to ask people. So, you know, I talked to Chad Kasim from Quality Record Pressings and a lot of people in the industry and I got their take on it and I spent off an article on it. And it's not only something that's interesting to me, but it adds value to our audience. Hmm. Being a, a listener of vinyl, I'll have to mm-hmm. check that article out. And I'll include a link in the show notes, audience, for you to check that out as well so you can see what Mary has to say on that topic. When anybody ever says Chicago to me, my gut reaction is, oh, harsh winters. Yeah, we're starting to move into that weather now. Yeah, last year was pretty bad. There, we, had some, we had some pretty bad days. How does that impact an audio professional's life or any professional's life in planning your day-to-day in those cold, cold months? Well, I have remote start on my car, so I can start up the car and warm it up before I go outside, wear lots of layers of clothing, especially when you're going out of remotes and you have to move equipment in and out of your car. I think there was one time... Not this last one. It was several years ago. We had like a blizzard. Mm -hmm. I didn't own a car at that point. And my boss called me and said, oh, you know what? It's okay. You don't have to go do the Wednesday concert. And I'm just like, I already put on my moon suit. I'm about to walk out the door. If the L's running, I'll get there. Because the cultural center is open to the public and also a warming center. So I knew it wasn't going to be closed. So if they're still having a concert I'm, I and the L is still running, I'm just like, I'll go. A warming center, so a place where the public can go to just get out of the cold. Yeah, exactly. Something we don't have in, in San Francisco. No, I don't think you have issues like that. <laughs> so when you, you mentioned when you're doing uh, remote gigs, moving gear in and out of your car, first thing that comes to mind whenever I think of moving gear in situations I've been in, it's that... That staging and strategizing if you're moving gear on your own to make sure it doesn't get stolen? Yeah, there's there's a bit of that. And a lot of times I am on my own. Fortunately, now a lot of the equipment has gotten miniaturized. So I can take a sound devices out and it has eight channels on it and I can get most of what I need to get done. I might have to bring a codec out to connect to the station via IP or phone lines. So... That's still a little bit big, but it's not impossible to carry. So usually, you know, I plan out moving gear out in stages out of the car. So it's like get it out of the car, get it to the door, plan or plan on asking like things like, is there a loading dock? Where can I go? Is there someone on site who can help me or at least watch the gear for me and things like that? Yeah. So that is that is a concern that it doesn't go missing or you don't forget something somewhere. I know I said we wouldn't talk about gear, but I have to ask to educate myself. And I think uh-huh. uh, there's a big batch of the audience that's probably just asked, what is a codec? Now, I think we all know what a codec is when it comes to turning a WAV file into an MP3, but I think you're right. referring to a box that essentially 
takes your yes. live feed and sends it to the station. That's correct. So it is actually making it into an MPEG-2 layer 3 audio stream, but it's doing it in real time. And it's in a little box, right? Yeah. We have some ISDN units we're still using, so that's about a 2U rack size. The new tie line we have is a 1U that's over IP. Does the venue have to have certain requirements to make your codec work? Yes. Some of the places we are still wired with ISDN lines, so we'll still use that technology. The tie line uses over IP and basically you just need like an internet connection, but there are some recommendations for that, which the chief engineer will usually arrange that and either he or I will go out and test the line before we have to do a broadcast. That's a whole nother ball of wax aside from the (laughs) audio itself. As far as gear, you talked about, you know, doing freelance gigs to support your gear habit. Do you go into debt for gear? No. Okay. No. See, that's one good thing about being raised by parents of that generation. (laughs) You did not spend anything you didn't have. Yeah. So no, I'm okay on that front. What is the criteria for buying for you? Like, what is the thought process? And ultimately, when do you pull the trigger on on a purchase? Well, I had a small setup at home so I could do little things, but I I had to really kind of upgrade big time last year because this album project came out of the blue for Liquid Melancholy. And it was very strange. I wasn't supposed to have worked on that album at all. It's was released on Sadie Records, which is a Chicago classical label. Mm-hmm. And they work with generally their engineer, Bill Malone, who's like fantastic. It just so happened that Bill was double booked that day and they had an orchestra and a soloist to record and Bill could not get out of his other engagement. And I happened to be available, but I was like, oh boy, I don't really have... I don't have an interface big enough. I have enough mic pre's, but I don't, there's a bunch of stuff I didn't have. And because I had savings and also from what I had learned about stress and autoimmune things, I said, okay, fine. I'm going to bite the bullet. I'm going to buy what I need and I'm going to get it done. So, so I did that. I bought a new interface. I actually bought another bank of mic pre's. I had some microphones already and Actually, Bill was like, here, you can take microphones, cables, whatever you need. So I was able to get it done. So I'd made nothing on that recording, zero. But everything told me, take it, do it, do it, do it, do it. And I'm certainly glad I did because I got the Grammy nomination for Best Engineered Album Classical out of that. That's that's really amazing. And you've taken all of that experience at WFMT doing live broadcast to, to the table there. All that Mm -hmm. knowledge coming to bear right there at that gig, and wow, yeah, what a deal. And it needed to go down because basically a lot of orchestral recording is done live in concert. Mm -hmm. So that was what we did. I recorded a rehearsal, which was also a rehearsal for myself, also a time for the composer and the producer to go over notes as well. And then I had to record two concerts which was the material for the album, for the concerto, and a patch session after the concert was over. So it was basically after the last concert and everybody cleared out of the concert hall, we had X amount of time to re-record the end so there wasn't any applause and do any fixes that would be edited in later. What are some of the things that People who either do or are considering getting into remote recording, like what we're talking about here, what are some of the things one needs to keep in mind about a gig like that or gigs like that? Well, I mean, there's like a different range of gigs in remote recording. There's like a lot of recital type concerts that happen and people who want to have that for archival purposes. And a lot of that can be done with just a stereo pair. (laughs) So that's fairly simple. An orchestra, under certain circumstances, you could probably capture it with a stereo pair, but that's not what the industry trend is right now. So you want to have more, at least for a release. So you want to have more control and be able to hear more of the sections with more detail. So you need input. So it's basically a multi-track session. And what about redundancy in recording? Yeah, 
Yeah, that also helps too, because if it's a live concert and you don't get it, then it's gone forever. So yeah, I always have like a redundant recorder with me and I, you know, have splits going to the recorder. So right now I have a Pro Tools rig and an Orion interface, but I also split it off into a Joko as a backup. Yeah. And I guess it would be interesting to be the one trying to submit an invoice for a recording that you were hired to do, but failed to accomplish. I guess, you know, at that point you'd be like, I, I can't give you an invoice. Oh, no. I mean, you this kind of thing, you can't. You, you'll just ruin your reputation forever and no one will, no one will hire you. you. I mean, there's no room for failure. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it, because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Samply, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Samply.app or Samply.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Samply.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Samply.app. Check it out. When you do these gigs, do you have an assistant with you? Sometimes. Often not. But yeah, most of the time it's just me. I do have an assistant. She's actually doing a gig on her own now. So Zoe, she just she just approached me and said, I want to learn some more and how to get in and any advice you might have. And at the time I was doing like a concert series, just, you know, a stereo pair kind of thing to capture the concert series that they might use for broadcast later for archive. And I was double booked for some things. And I said, okay. And she had a classical music background. So I'm like, okay, I can't really teach you easily what to listen for. You already know that, but I can teach you the technical things. So she's gone out and done some work for me. And now she's starting to get gigs on her own. So I'll rent her equipment and she'll go out and do those. What about power? When you go to these gigs, are there ways to make the gig come off more effective for yourself and your gear when you're considering what power that the venue provides or has or doesn't have. Yeah, so that's sometimes a variable. Fortunately, my gear doesn't draw that much power. And then sometimes I'll use a Furman conditioner as well. So it hasn't been too much of an issue. The only, like if I if I have to go into like an old church and record something where I'm not certain of the power, I'll bring a conditioner with me. But so far, it hasn't been a problem. What's been more of a problem is because churches can be good venues for recording classical music, but they have all kinds of noise, (laughs) especially if it's during the winter and they have like big boiler systems. So I have to arrange like, can you shut that down like an hour before we start to record? Because it's going to gurgle and knock and all of that for like an hour as it settles down. But then, you know, we don't want to turn it off too early because then the place will be freezing. Huh. Could you talk to me a little bit about what one should consider as far as rate and how you bill your time? What are some things that you've overlooked in the past and then thought, okay, next time I do that, I'm going to charge this much because I forgot to factor this part of it in? What, What should we be thinking about? So if I do a remote recording, I generally have a day rate and a half a day rate. I might adjust it on occasion for like a recital recording or something like that, but usually not. I usually have a day rate. If I'm recording something in a studio, then I just, I charge hourly and I put that on top of whatever the studio charges. If I have to do editing, it's hourly. Sometimes it's attended, sometimes it's not. 
And most of the people I work with, I already know, I already have some kind of relationship with because either I've met them through my work at WFMT or they were a referral here or there. So it's it's usually, you know, not too much of a problem billing wise because we already have a relationship. Does the complexity of the recording ever affect what you charge? Yeah, it can. Like an orchestral recording for a release is going to be much more complicated than somebody's recital. So sometimes I will add on, like if they want certain equipment or whatever, then sometimes I'll add on for that. Or if it's like a really long distance, I have to drive a really long distance, I will charge for that. There is one thing I had to do. I actually did a podcast remote recording series for the state of Illinois because Illinois just turned 200, Mm. which actually I made all my money back on my interface and everything I had to spend to do the orchestral album. (laughs) But it was basically we were going to record this podcast live on site at various locations across Illinois, like the original state capital and Alton, Illinois, which is just by the Mississippi River. And they all had themes like transportation. And, you know, we went to a a number of historic sites across the state and we recorded like interviews in front of an audience plus folk music. So yeah, I had different musicians depending on where we were and different guests. And then an actor dressed as Abe Lincoln would come in and talk in character. You couldn't see that in the podcast, but it was pretty entertaining <laughs> on site. <laughs> and so you're you're juggling a lot of different pieces of audio there, possibly some lav mics, wireless mics. We didn't do wireless mics. We did I did desk stands for the interviews, but then whatever the music needed is what I brought. So we had everything from guitar to hammer dulcimer to fiddles. We had a whole array of stuff, depending on where we were. And and basically, when I took this, well, first, I didn't want to take the gig. I'm just like, oh, this sounds like too much work. And they kept asking. They kept, oh, no, no, we want you. We want you. So I'm like, all right, I'm getting in to each location a day early. You're paying for all my lodging and food and whatever else I need. And and they were like, they didn't bat an eyelash. So I'm like, all right, I guess I'm doing it. <laughs> Isn't that weird? Sometimes that like you reluctantly do something or even if you do something willingly, you're like, oh, okay, this is going to be a lot of work. Screw it. I'm just going to like put it all out there and just put out the maximum rate to cover myself. And when they say yes, you're like... You've kind of solved one problem, but then you've opened yourself up to, okay, now you got the gig, now what? It ended up being a lot of fun, actually. I'm really glad I did it. At first, I was just like, I don't know. It's just, nah, I don't know. But it was a lot of fun, actually. It's interesting, too, because it can bring a lot of stress because I know that as audio professionals, even on a simple gig, we walk ourselves through the setup and we plan And when the setup becomes complex and it's unknown clients and unknown people, and to some degree, it really just compounds the stress. Yeah, yeah, it can. And they had invited me to go and do site visits with them, but one of them is almost 300 miles away and I couldn't couldn't get free to do that. So they... They took lots of pictures for me and sent me diagrams and things like that. So that helped a lot. Wow. But a fun gig in the end, and you ended up making some some money, and that worked out. Yeah. We're almost out of time. I want to ask, well, first of all, are there any aspects of your career or things you find important that you wanted to talk about that we haven't touched on? You know, I, I think I always, I used to kind of undervalue myself mm-hmm. for a while because to me, this is like, so this job sometimes is so fun and I don't, and it's easy. I mean, it's not easy, but it's easy. You know what I mean? Right. It's not, it's not digging ditches and stuff. So, so just really understanding my value and what I bring to recording was like a big eye opener to me, a a big realization to me. And then when I got the recognition with the Grammy nomination, it would just sort of solidified that. I'm just like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, I am good. And not everybody can do this. So yeah, I, I started valuing myself and my skills much, much more. And, and when I started doing that, I started getting recognition and higher level clients and, and all of that. So that was, it was a very long learning process. <laughs> 
What would you say to others who want to do this or are doing this and feeling a lack of confidence or a, a level of imposter syndrome? What should they do to accelerate their confidence and get to that point a little quicker? I can tell you what I did. I don't know if if it's going to be the same thing for them or not. I just started doing a ton of self-work and a lot of introspection and just questioning where these beliefs came from. And a lot of beliefs are instilled in you from the age of like zero to seven. And a lot of people never get past that. So so I started questioning all of that. And I started working on myself, reading a lot of philosophy, reading a lot of personal growth books, meditating a lot, which also helped my health a lot. And that just gave me a lot of confidence and a lot of insight and just helped overall in life and audio. Yeah. And I think the uh, overall mental health and physical health is something that as audio professionals, we we don't always pay attention to because we're so focused on a little bit of survival, get the gig, pay the bills, do whatever it takes to do the gig. But I think to do the gig, these things that you're talking about are so crucial and very, mm-hmm. very it's just so important to what we do. It can really enhance the gig we do and, and get to that point of confidence. Yeah, I think so. Yes. It helped me very much. Excellent. Do you have a website? Yeah, it's marymazurik.com. We'll put a link to that in the show notes audience so you can check out Mary there. And uh, is, is it okay to put a, uh, your LinkedIn profile in there as well? Sure. Okay, we'll do that. And as usual, if you want to connect with me on LinkedIn, you know that's in the show notes and Mary's will be there as well. Well, Mary, thank you so much. Really great to uh, meet you and hear about your work. Definitely has got me thinking on a few things. So I appreciate that. And I hope to meet you in person at some point. Unfortunately, I will not be at AES this year, but maybe at another event and at another time. Yeah, that sounds great. And thank you for having me on. Pleasure. Thank you so much. Mary Mazurik here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks so much for being here with me today. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LPUNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LPUNF. Want to thank everybody that helped out with the show, including Anne Marie Plo on the editing, Cliff Truesdale on the Working Class Audio theme song, and the magic voice of Mr. Chuck Smith. Spread the word, get out and see some live music, listen to some records, and until next time, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life. Many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on Gearspace.com. So check that out.